Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we continue our look at the X-Men films with X2, which was originally released in, at least North America, on May 2nd, 2003, in a mass release. So it follows about three years after the original. It was directed by Brian Singer once again, and this was his first project after the original X-Men. It spent a lot of time in development, partly because it went through 27 drafts of the scripts and a number of other snags and scheduling and reshuffling, but we'll discuss those in a moment. And this is going to be Brian Singer's last installment of X-Men for quite some time. His next film is Superman Returns. We'll discuss how that plays out in next month's podcast, and then he comes back after that. Now, rounding out the writing staff, Brian Singer helped establish the story. We also have Zach Penn, whose career launched with his script for Last Action Hero, followed by PCU, Inspector Gadget, and Behind Enemy Lines. And then following this, he would have other content on his resume, including next month's podcast, so we will leave that for later discussion. David Hayter returns as a writer. In between the first X film and this one, he worked on Scorpion King and Lost in Oz. This is his last X-Men film, but not his last superhero movie, so we'll save the discussion of the rest of his career for that podcast. Michael Doherty joins the writing staff following Season's Greetings, which was a short film that he did prior to this. Following this, he did Urban Legends Bloody Mary, and then into Superman Returns and Beyond. So you can check out the Superman Returns podcast for the rest of his credits. And similarly, Dan Harris has essentially done this, Superman Returns, and a bunch of short stories as well. Now, one name that should be on the writer list, but isn't, I would say, is Chris Claremont. He wrote the graphic novel X-Men God Loves, Man Kills. We'll be discussing that in more detail in January 2016 on the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. But suffice it to say, that particular story was a major inspiration to this one. In that one, a reverend by the name of William Stryker was publicly advocating against mutants, calling them sinful and abominations and all sorts of things, and privately had actually arranged his own little army to go track them down and destroy them all. That version of Stryker's completely irrational fear and hatred of mutants stemmed from a car accident and seeing his own son was a mutant. That's essentially all that's retained here. So the comic book Stryker had no connections to Wolverine, he was not a part of the military, and his son died essentially at birth, along with his wife. And that's the moment that sent him onto his insane crusade. This William Stryker is a military leader who sees the dangers of mutants, much as others did previously, but in this case, he's not so much concerned with the dangers of them as he is concerned with controlling them and turning them into weapons. So while in the first one, Senator Kelly said that he didn't see any difference between mutants and others, they, he just saw weapons in our schools, William Stryker also sees mutants as weapons, but he wants them to be his weapons. At least that's the way it played out in the eventual version of the script. Now, as is common in Hollywood, especially with sequels, they would hire different people to do different drafts of the script. In this case, David Hayter and Zach Penn wrote completely different scripts with no interaction with each other, and then it would be the producers and directors who sat down with them and pick and choose the best elements of both to combine them into a single film. This is very common. It could be why we get so many overstuffed and sometimes inconsistent scripts. They'd have other people come in and put them together into a single script. In this case, Michael Doherty and Dan Harris were brought in to take those two separate drafts and ideas that had gone through multiple revisions each and turn them into a single final script. Now, with a promised budget of $125 million, which did change, we'll talk about that later, 
Brian Singer had some ideas for things he wanted to throw in. He wanted more mutants, including Angel and Beast, the other two founding X-Men who had never appeared. He wanted the Danger Room, which is the X-Men's classic training room in the X-Mansion, and a number of other things that ultimately were cut out. So Angel and Beast were both cut out because they felt Nightcrawler would be enough of an outsider he would serve this story very well, as he does in that phenomenal opening sequence where he single-handedly tears through the White House. Nightcrawler's makeup, however, was very time-consuming and very heavy. In the scenes where you could see his entire upper torso, Alan Cummings had to spend about 10 hours in makeup. Now, Cummings was Singer's first choice. He almost couldn't make it because of scheduling conflicts, but the development took so long that his schedule cleared up in time to get the film done. Most of the cast did return, and some of whom also had scenes that were in here and cut. One particular example that stands out to me is James Marsden as Cyclops. Now, Cyclops is my favorite character in the X-Books, and I felt he wasn't treated all that well in the first one. We're told he's a leader. We didn't really get a chance to see why he was the leader. They were putting a little of that, a little too much of that emphasis on Wolverine, in my opinion, which makes sense to some degree when you're making him the star. And he is clearly the X-Men character who sells the most books, but leadership wasn't really his role for most of his time in the comics. Now, David Hayter also felt that Cyclops and James Marsden, who played him, deserved more screen time. So he wrote the sequence in which Cyclops and Yuriko fight when Yuriko, aka Lady Deathstrike, played by Kelly Hu, is trying to break Magneto out of his plastic prison. And the original fight scene was much more elaborate, but when they needed to cut for time, they cut a lot more raw time out of Cyclops' single major fight scene and relatively little time out of Wolverine's extended mansion fight. So again, Wolverine is favored over Cyclops. Now, that works, but I would have liked to see Cyclops do a little bit better demonstration and better showing of himself in that fight. What we see from him is good, but he could have and should have lasted longer against Yuriko or Lady Deathstrike than he actually did. Now, after that fight, he disappears for a large portion of the movie, only to return later brainwashed by Stryker, who is, as I said, turning mutants into his own weapons. In the original script, we actually saw a lot of flashbacks to his childhood during the brainwashing process, which would have done a lot to develop his character and reveal what Cyclops was about, how he came to be the way he was, and fill that in so he's less of a cardboard cutout on screen. That all got cut for time as well, as did similar scenes for Professor X. Now, as annoying as that is, I get it, because this is a longer movie than others to date. I could understand why Fox would be hesitant to do it, especially since Fox does have a tendency to try and edit their films below certain length marks that will make, you know, standard multiplex chains do an extra showing or two each day, especially in that opening weekend to drive the box office dollars up. But the filmmakers did manage to get most of the original cast back in. So they brought in Patrick Stewart as Professor X, although it was one of the lawyers from his law firm that had purchased the wheelchair after the first film and hung on to it and rented it back to the studio at a somewhat inflated rate for the purposes of making this film. We see Ian McKellen return as Magneto and Rebecca Romaine Stamos return as Mystique, although Sabretooth and Toad were cut. Toad was cut just because Ray Park's schedule wouldn't work out and there was also budget constraints, but they wanted to have an extended fight between him and Nightcrawler. Similarly, Sabretooth was cut out for budget and time constraints. We also saw a lot more of Halle Berry as Storm. In between the first two X-Men films, Halle Berry starred in and won a well-deserved Oscar for her work in Monster's Ball. And rumor has it 
that her first day of filming after signing on for X2 coming onto the set, she walked into Brian Singer's office, put her Oscar on his desk, and said, I want to do more. And was adamant enough, with enough backing after having won the Oscar, to get her way and give Storm more to do, which also pulled away some of the content from Cyclops and Jean Grey and some of the other characters. We also see Anna Paquin return as Rogue, Sean Ashmore return as Iceman, Hugh Jackman return as Wolverine, Thomka Janssen return as Jean Grey, and a number of other major characters return. For new characters, we have Brian Cox as William Stryker. He's known for Troy, The Born Supremacy, Braveheart, and The Born Identity as just four of his 202 credits in a career that dates back to 1965. So he is certainly a well-known and respected actor. Now, as I mentioned, Alan Cumming was the one brought in as Nightcrawler. He had previously performed with Famke Janssen in Goldeneye, and he performed with her again in the more recent Good Wife TV series. He appeared in Burlesque. He appeared in the Josie and the Pussycats comic book adaptation, as well as a number of other projects. The IMDb gives him 114 acting credits dating back to 1984. Now, Aaron Stanford was here as Pyro, aka John Allardyce, and he would appear in multiple X-Men films. His breakout role was Tadpole in the year 2000. He's known for this, for X2, for The Hills Have Eyes, for his role in Nikita, as well as the 12 Monkeys TV series, as well as a few other odds and ends. We've already mentioned that Kelly Hu was here as Lady Deathstrike, and her IMDb listings credit her as being best known for this film, Scorpion King, Sunset Beach, and Cradle to the Grave. She also has 104 acting credits, including voice acting on Spectacular Spider-Man, the more recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Robot Chicken, and more. Her acting credit list goes back to three of her guest appearances in Growing Pains from 1987, when she would have been just 19 years old. Katie Stewart has a very brief sequence as Shadowcat, a.k.a. Kitty Pride. She's also known for She's the Man, A Wrinkle in Time, and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Kia Wong also has a brief role as Jubilation Lee or Jubilee. Her career goes back to 1996 with Sabrina the Teenage Witch as her first of 19 acting credits in the IMDb. Bruce Hodgson plays Artie, the Forkton mutant in this. His acting career dates back to the year 2000. He appeared in Stargate SG-1 in Smallville, a number of other things. Best known for this film, Santa Claus 2, Diary of Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules, and Kid Cannabis. Shauna Kane is probably best known, according to the IMDb, for this film, for X-Men 3, Red Riding Hood, and Dreamcatcher. She has 11 acting credits and plays Teresa Rourke Cassidy, aka Siren, in This and X3. Daniel Cudmore is known for X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men The Last Stand, X-Men 2, and The Twilight Saga, New Moon, at least. He plays Felix in The Twilight Saga, as well as Colossus in the X-Men films this being his big screen debut. Now, Charles Siegel doesn't appear on screen. We only hear his voice as Dr. Shaw, which based on the content of that particular scene and that debate, probably means he was meant to be Sebastian Shaw, who we'll discuss later when he's played by Kevin Bacon. That's one of his 51 credits. He's best known for this, the It miniseries, The Possession, and Prozac Nation. Now, his sequence was just a TV conversation in the bar in which Steve Backick was the person he was debating against, who was the Beast, or Dr. Henry McCoy. Backick is best known for, again, X2, The Sixth Day, Andromeda, and John Tucker Must Die, amongst his 117 credits on the IMDb, dating back to 1991. 
Now, Michael Reed McKay plays Jason in this film, a character inspired by Jason Wingard, a.k.a. Mastermind. His paternity was changed pretty dramatically as it was his age. And this is not the first superhero film he's been in that we've discussed. He was also Bane in Batman and Robin, at least prior to being juiced up and turned into the hulking behemoth. He's also known for Seven and Ace Ventura When Nature Calls, amongst 21 credits on the IMDb, the first of which was The Monster Squad. Now, Iceman's brother, Roddy Drake, is actually played by a man who's seriously named James Kirk. His middle name is Nickel rather than Tiberius, but he is James Kirk. Best known for Final Destination 2, this film, She's the Man and Two for the Money, amongst his 50 credits dating back to golf punks. Jill Teed plays Bobby Drake's mother, best known for this film, Godzilla, Mission to Mars, and Battlestar Galactica, Blood and Chrome, amongst 73 credits dating back to 1992. Alf Humphreys plays Iceman's father, best known for First Blood, this film, The Uninvited and Final Destination 2, amongst 121 credits that date back to 1980. And it's really Bobby Drake's family is the only family that gets a lot of screen time here, and that's largely because of a scene in which he tells his parents that he's a mutant. They don't know that at first. And it's very much designed to be a coming out scene. And it plays fairly well in that, although it does have an irritating moment where Pyro tells Iceman's parents that they've discovered it's the male that carries the mutant gene, so technically it's his dad's fault. Well, the only way that a gene can be carried exclusively by the male parent is if it's exclusive to the Y chromosome. If that happened, females could not possess the gene in any way, we wouldn't have any female mutants. So that's a line that often gets nitpicked by the scientific geeks, including myself. I'm actually willing to give it a pass, not because I think the science is in any way accurate, but because I think Pyro is enough of a jackass to just make that up to bug Iceman's family and drive them up the wall. So I don't think it's actually true that it works that way in the X-Men movie universe. I just think he was yanking some chains. Now, this film also stars Kendall Cross. She's got a very small part here. She's actually credited as cop number two. But I pulled her out because amongst her 71 credits, there are a number of films that would also be known to X-Men 2 fans. She's been in The Butterfly Effect, Elysium, Flight 93, The 100, Supernatural, Human Target, Caprica, Space Buddies, Stargate SG-1, Lone Gunman, Smallville, Andromeda, The Outer Limits, Highlander, Strange Lux, Sliders. So it's a small part in this film, but she's appeared in small parts in so many sci-fi and fantasy entries that you probably know her face if not her name. Now, this film does something a bit unique. When it comes to the production crew, most of the time the roles are pretty dedicated. There might be some crossover between writer and director, but that's about it. Well, this film was composed by John Ottman, who also worked with Elliot Graham as co-editors. So Ottman was not only composing the music for the film, he helped with editing, which helped him pace things to work with the film. Now, this is his first stint into the X-Men films, although it's certainly not his first movie. His credits go back to 1993, and in 1995, he composed the music for Brian Singer's Usual Suspects. So they do know how to work together. He also composed music for Cable Guy, Incognito, Apt Pupil, also by Brian Singer, Eight-Legged Freaks, and a number of other films. Following this, he would do Gothica, Cellular, Lonely Place, House of Wax, Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang, and then Fantastic Four and Superman Returns, as well as Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. So we'll discuss it more later, including when he returns to the X-Men franchise for Days of Future Past. I also want to mention the cinematography by Newton Thomas Siegel. He had a bit of a challenge in this. 
So this is beyond the first X-Men. They had to figure out how to film the same Cerebro set two different ways. So they redressed the set to make the deluxe, clean, pristine X-Men version of Cerebro look like the beat-up ramshackle one that Stryker had assembled. So that with the set decorators makes for something of a challenge. There's also some location shooting. There's working around a 3,500 block of ice that was a physical prop during the X-Men mansion assault. He also had to try and blend footage from two films together because they had limited access to the mansion that was used as the X-Mansion in this and as the Luther Mansion in Smallville. So a lot of the mansion footage, especially exterior establishing shots, was actually filmed for the first X-Men film. And they just brought it back and put the unused footage in this film to set up the same establishing shots. The mansion is definitely a focal point. In this case, Stryker, who is working for the government but running his own agenda to turn mutants into brainwashed weapons, invades the X-Mansion in a raid to try and kidnap more of these mutants and turn them into further weapons. He does manage to kidnap both Cyclops and Professor Xavier, and hooks Professor Xavier up to his own version of Cerebro with the plan to amplify his powers enough and brainwash him using his son Jason's abilities so that he could actually kill all mutants on Earth in one go. And the rest of the X-Men are forced to band together with Magneto to get there in time and have enough influence to stop him. So once again, the whole stint about intolerance and loving that fellow man and other symbolism for minority groups comes through very strong in this film. I would also say that it was the first really, truly good X-Men film. The first one was enjoyable enough, but I found it straight enough from the source material that it bothered me as it may bother others. Although I completely understand why people would love and enjoy it if that's their first exposure to the X-Men, or even if they're a little less committed to the canon than I am, possibly needlessly so in my case. This X-Men film is not only a good film, but it's also a very good adaptation. We don't see a lot of Cyclops, but his moments are Cyclops moments, right? We find out that he's fighting when he's brainwashed. We see that he is a capable fighter, even going up against Lady Deathstrike. We see elements of Wolverine's mysterious past, which is mysterious even to him. And especially in the big climactic battle, which wraps up the end of the film, we get to see elements of Jean Grey and her transformation into the Phoenix, which will be a thread in X-Men 3. And I'll discuss how effectively that works there next month. But this, as I said, was the first time that they used a specific X-Men comic book story as inspiration for the film. And they picked a good one. This one works very well. And it worked well for audiences as well. The budget in this was actually cut from $125 million down to $110 million. So using our general rule of thumb of having two to three times the budget in order to be profitable in terms of the domestic gross, we're looking at anywhere from $220 to $330 million. The domestic gross here actually came in at $214,949,694. So a little bit shy of the lower level in our rule of thumb, but Certainly close enough that I'm sure the subsequent DVD and Blu-ray releases and re-releases are enough to push it over the top. In addition, it brought in $192,761,855 US dollars in the international markets, bringing the worldwide box office total to $407,711,549. So this is certainly a profitable film, and it's an enjoyable film, and it's enough that it kept the franchise going to see X-Men 3 The Last Stand. Now, at the time X-Men 3 was commissioned, it was the last guaranteed time that Fox had to tell an X-Men story. So because they weren't sure if they were going to renegotiate for number four, either by their choice or 
according to what Marvel was going to be asking for to continue with the license, they decided to go all out and put everything in. And we will discuss exactly how that worked out in detail next month. In the meantime, don't forget to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher, as well as any other shows that you listen to. Share links to the episodes with your friends in case you think that they would enjoy the show as well. And thank you for listening.